Well, good morning. It is a delight to be with you. I love your church. I love your pastor. He is a great blessing to me. I love your pastors. I've gotten to know them over the last several years. I'm so thankful for a congregation committed to Holy Scripture, committed to teaching its people the Bible and encouraging them to walk in the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, laboring for the good of our community locally and more broadly. And I am glad to be here with you today. I am only saddened that I don't get to see you in person and to greet you in person. I do hope for another day like that soon. If ever I or our church could serve you, it would be a distinct honor and privilege to do so. And please know that we are thankful that God has placed you here to encourage our congregation as well. You are a blessing to us. So many of our people have been encouraged by the ministries of this church over the last many decades, and we are thankful and pray that you would continue to be faithful as we see the eternal day of God drawing near. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you're not very familiar with the Gospel of Mark, it will be helpful to you, uh, for you to know how he structured his Gospel very quickly with three questions. Who is Jesus? Mark 1.1 through Mark 8.30. What does Jesus expect of those who follow him? Mark 8.31 through Mark 10.52. And why did Jesus have to die? Mark 11.1 through Mark 16.8. Our text is in the final section of Mark's gospel, focused on the very last week of Jesus' life. It's Thursday. He'll die tomorrow. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin reading in verse 12, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. If you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, I just want to encourage you now, circle every time you see Passover. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the Word of God. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Gabe and Andy have been friends for over 20 years. Two friends originally brought together by a passion for music and a love for games who for more than six years have walked 30 minutes once a week to give each other a high five. A tradition that they started merely as a fun way to see each other regularly. After moving within two miles of each other, Andy suggested that they walk toward each other once a week and high five in the middle of what just so happened to be a local park. So at 8.05 a.m. on April 30th, 2014, they texted and said, All right, let's leave our houses. They met in the middle point, gave each other a high five, and then really weren't sure what they should do, so they stayed there and talked to each other for three hours. The only rule in the beginning was that they had to do it one time each week, but over the years the process has evolved. Now one person sends the other person a high five emoji. Then the other person responds with the hand. Then they both respond with the walking emoji. That's the only communication. Over time, friends became interested and started to ask, can I go on the high five walk with you? On one occasion, they actually had 15 to 20 guys with them, some walking with Gabe, some walking with Andy, all of them in a long line high-fiving each other along the street. They say it's even not rare for their wives and their children to come with them as well. Even the high five has changed over time. At first, it was a pretty standard high five, but over time, they, quote, started adding other moves to it. Eventually, it became a clap, snap, high five. And if they're too busy that week or with the demands of life, they simply give each other what they call the silent high five without talking. But as you can imagine at this point, the Silent Highs 5 has some rules with it as well. They have to first pass each other without looking at each other as if they're strangers. They can't even smile. Then they take 20 paces each. Then they turn around and come back. But they don't acknowledge each other's existence until the very last second when they stick up their hand and high five and walk home. There's no acknowledgement that the other person is even there other than the high five. The high five is so intimately woven into the fabric of their lives that Gabe said, quote, For the last six and a half years, it's been one of the most consistent things in my life. Until last year when Gabe was diagnosed with a rare, more long-term version of encephalitis and lost significant portions of his memory. For the last three and a half years, fellowship with the twelve disciples has been one of the most consistent things in Jesus' life. Until 
the Thursday night of the Lord's Last Supper, when Jesus was betrayed by his enemy and abandoned by his friends, on what has become known to us as Monday Thursday in many Christian traditions because the Latin for new commandment means mandatum novum. And in preparation for that very meal, notice first Jesus' prediction. Look again in verses 12 and 16, through 16 with me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? When Jesus wakes up on Thursday morning, he will likely not close his eyes and sleep again until he closes them in death on Friday afternoon. Yet Mark tells us that Jesus never wavered, not even for a second. Jesus never hesitated in the final days of his life. In fact, as we read Mark's gospel and all of the gospels, we see that he remained fully prepared to take deliberate actions that move him toward the cross when his disciples asked him, verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? As thousands and tens of thousands of Passover pilgrims crowded into Jerusalem for the feast from all over the world, the disciples' minds naturally turned to obvious questions. What are we going to do? Where are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? There is an urgency in their questions because of the significance of Passover. And there is concern for us as readers because we are aware what they are not, that Judas has already agreed to betray him. Just look up at verse 10 in Mark's gospel of chapter 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. But Jesus is not concerned. And he is already prepared, verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The careful preparations made for this meal stress its importance to Jesus. Jesus desired to have this meal with his disciples, a fact that Mark emphasizes by mentioning Passover four times in our text as he highlights that Jesus' final meal with his disciples was a Passover meal on the same day the Jews, verse 12, sacrificed the Passover lamb. The careful preparation not only stresses Jesus' desire, he longed to have this meal with his disciples. His instructions demonstrate his omniscience and that he tells two of his disciples that when they enter the city, they will encounter a man carrying a jar of water, a man they are to follow to the house where they will eat the Passover meal. Now, finding a man carrying a jar of water in Jerusalem during Passover would have been highly unusual but also very difficult because the city would have been flooded with tens of thousands of people coming from all over the world to prepare for the Passover feast. To find anyone doing anything at all would have been difficult. It would be like you actually knowing your friend's acquaintance when you travel. 
you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go overseas to Europe or Asia, and you come home and tell your friends, and they ask you if you met the one European or Asian friend that they happen to know. The fact that they encounter the man at all who leads them to the house where they are to eat the Passover meal exhibits God's providence and Jesus' omniscience. He's in absolute control. And the fact that there was a room ready for them shows the importance of the moment to Jesus, since he would have had to secure the room in advance to make sure that there was a room at all because the enormous crowds made it nearly impossible to find any place at all to eat the meal with inside the city walls. And yet Mark tells us, verse 16, the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. Everything was happening according to plan as Jesus took deliberate steps toward the cross in the final days of his life. Friends, Jesus died more willingly than we receive eternal life. Jesus' prediction, notice second, Judas' betrayal. Look in verse 17 with me. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus and his disciples would have spent several hours together in verse 15, the upper room. The events included the washing of the disciples' feet, eating the Passover meal, a prediction of Peter's denials, all three of them, and Judas' betrayal, and a lengthy teaching session recorded by John in John 15, 16, and 17. Sometime around 6 p.m., Jesus and his disciples would have gathered together to recline around a U-shaped table, a very intimate setting. John would have been on one side of him, and Judas would have been on the other, even more intimate and difficult knowing that he would have been sitting beside the Savior. Peter would have been looking on from one of the other tables at an angle. And what Jesus says next stuns his disciples, verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Talk about an ominous tone for the rest of the evening. Yet once again, Jesus demonstrates his awareness and his total control of everything taking place. While he goes to his destiny to be forsaken and alone, he remains in sovereign control, completely aware of everything that is taking place. You can imagine the atmosphere in the room would have been palpable, extremely intense when Jesus revealed that one of them, one of these sitting with him was a traitor. Judas must have been stunned to now realize that his secretive plan had been uncovered. And that shocking revelation brings a flurry of responses from the disciples. They simply 
cannot believe it. They begin to ask all together in verse 19, Is it I? Is it me? Surely it's not I, is it, Lord? And Jesus replying to their questions makes four things perfectly clear in verse 20. He said to them, It is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. First, the traitor is one of the twelve. Second, he is one who dips bread into the dish with Jesus. Third, that man would have been better off if he had never been born. Fourth, this betrayal has been ordained by God. Now we read this and we think it would have made everything very clear for the other 11 disciples as if they would have been sitting there thinking, I always knew it was Judas. I mean, he, he just looks like a betrayer. He looks like the one who would have denied Jesus this whole time. His hair is a different color. He wears the wrong clothes. Everything about him says traitor, denier, betrayal. But Jesus comments about the betrayer dipping his hand in the bowl with him would not have been as clear as we might think because everybody that evening at some point would have dipped their hand into that bowl. This is why they're so confused. And it underscores the terrible nature of Judas' treachery. He, verse 20, is the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Jesus' identification of the traitor alludes to Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In this lament psalm, David decries the fact that a close friend, someone he trusted, someone he ate with, a sign of true friendship, would actually turn against him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be betrayed by those who love him or profess to love him. This is why Jesus is such a sufficient Savior and can hear your prayers about betrayal so empathetically and compassionately. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by people he trusted, to be betrayed by people who said, I love you, to be betrayed by people that he thought were his, quote, friends. David's sorrow pointed forward even then to the Davidic Messiah, the son of David, Jesus. And Judas' betrayal is a part of God's plan. And verse 21 was written of long ago. And the fact that the betrayal is both the fulfillment of God's plan, having been prophesied in Scripture, but also the willful choice of the traitor are stated clearly in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's God's decree. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. His own willful choice. God's sovereignty and Judas' human responsibility coexist and sit side by side in the text. They are both stated without embarrassment. God is in absolute control of everything that is happening in the final days of Jesus, but Judas is absolutely responsible for his sin against the Savior. Friends, Jesus must die 
according to the Scriptures. And this certainly brings to our minds, if we're familiar with our Bibles, texts like Isaiah 52 and 53. But the emphasis in Mark 14, 17 through 21 is also on the certainty of Judas' judgment. Verse 21, It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Better never to live than to die apart from Jesus. Better never to live than to have the most full, most blessed, most wonderful, most beautiful, most illustrious life ever and die estranged from Jesus. Better never to live than to be rich and famous and good-looking and funny and thought of as wonderful by all people than to live the longest life ever and die without Jesus. Parents, I wonder, what were you teaching your children was truly valuable this past holiday season? Accomplishments? Prestige? Comfort? We just prayed for 40 days for life. Better never to live than to live and die without Jesus. Students, I wonder, what are you teaching your friends is truly valuable? Looks? Sex? Material possessions? Followers? Better never to live than to live and die without Jesus. Pastors, I wonder... What are we teaching our congregations is truly valuable? Family, fame, marriage, education, fortune, comfort. Better never to live than to live and die apart from Jesus. Friends, it is better never to live one day on planet earth than to have absolutely everything the world has to offer and die apart from Jesus. Judas knew the Savior. He walked with Jesus and he talked with Jesus. He saw Jesus and he ate with Jesus and he died apart from Jesus. Better never to live than to live beside Jesus and die without Jesus. Because there is salvation in no other name. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus' prediction. Judas' betrayal. Notice third, Jesus' pledge. Look in verse 22. And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Passover meal consisted of several basic elements, each one having symbolic importance and contributing to the retelling of the Exodus story. The Passover lamb reminded them of the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts to escape the visitation of the angel of death. 
The unleavened bread reminded them of the swiftness of their redemption and that they had no time to bake bread before their flight. A bowl of puree reminded them of the clay used to make bricks during their captivity. The bowl of salt water recalled the tears of their slavery in the water of the Red Sea. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of their bondage and slavery. Four cups of wine were drunk during the Passover meal. Each cup commemorated one of the four promises God made to His people in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. The passage reads, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you out to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The first Passover represented God's greatest act of deliverance in the Hebrew Scriptures, and the creation of Israel as a nation. Yahweh defeated Pharaoh by His mighty power. He defeated the strongest king and the mightiest nation on earth as if it was nothing. He delivered His people from slavery through the sacrificial blood of the Lamb. So Exodus 12 tells us the Israelites were to kill a lamb and to rub that blood on the doorpost. It says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God wants us to get the point. So he says the same thing another time in the very same passage. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when I see the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will Pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The importance of this event simply cannot be overstated. The importance and significance of Passover cannot be overestimated. It signaled not only the release of the Israelites from slavery, but the dawning of a new covenant with their God. And at the very same time, foreshadowed the death of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Later, when Israel was oppressed and defeated by her enemies, the prophets were predicting a day when Yahweh would return to Zion to accomplish a new and greater exodus, a new and greater Passover. And it is only in the light of this historical context that certain parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Last Supper become obvious to us. In the Passover, God remembered His covenant with Abraham. At the Lord's Supper, a new covenant is established between God and His people. At the Passover, Israel remembered their bondage and slavery in Egypt and how God delivered them. At the Lord's Supper, believers, Christian believers, are reminded of their former slavery to sin, but through Christ's death, how they have received forgiveness and freedom from that bondage to sin. In, pass, in the Passover, the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorpost as a sign of their obedience to God. A lamb had to die for there to be deliverance. In the Lord's Supper, the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, has been shed for our deliverance. 
Jesus' words recall and transform this rich symbolism of Passover, announcing the arrival of the new exodus, the inauguration, the beginning of the new covenant. He says, and as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body. And he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. This is why the Passover meal has a prescribed order, a liturgy to it. First came the blessing of this festival and the first cup, followed by the drinking of that cup. Next, the food is paraded out before all of the people, and the youngest son would ask the father, why is this night so special and different from all of the other nights? And the father would begin retelling the Exodus story and pointing to all of the elements and explaining their significance, praising God for past redemption, looking forward for future redemption. And then they would begin to sing Psalms 113 through 114. And then they would drink the second cup of wine and they would bless the bread and they would break it and distribute it. And that bread would be eaten with bitter herbs and the puree. And then the meal would be eaten. And then the Passover meal would include a roasted lamb that had been sacrificed in the temple. And at the end of that meal, there would be the third cup of wine followed by more singing in Psalms 115 through 118. And then the fourth cup of wine would be taken and conclude the meal. But Jesus' statement, for careful readers of the Bible, in verse 25, does not simply look backward. Notice what he says. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drank it new in the kingdom of God. He directs his disciples' attention not backward, but forward to his second coming. And he takes this bread, this unleavened bread, and says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. These words are the source of so much debate, and the controversy centers on the interpretation of Jesus' statement, my body and my blood. Just very quickly, Roman Catholics understand this to be transubstantiation. They hold a view And say when the priest speaks appointed words, the bread and wine are transformed in the body and blood of Jesus, even though the wine and bread remain the same. They are wrong. And there's another interpretation known as consubstantiation, saying that the bread and wine remain bread and wine, but the spiritual presence of Christ is in and around and through the elements, and they are wrong. The Protestant interpretation of this church and Protestant churches is that Jesus' words are symbolic, emphasizing remembrance instead of focusing on this word is. There is a memorial of remembering his cross work and looking forward to his return when he will gather his people. He will come and he will gather his people around the marriage supper of the Lamb and he will feast with them at the final marriage supper with all of his bride that he loved so very much. Jesus' words echo once again Exodus. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made for you in accordance with all of these words. And his reference here is a clear reference to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 through uh, through 34. While the Sinai covenant established blood of sacrificial animals, 
This new covenant is established through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Brothers and sisters, it is because of His death on the cross that He will remember our sins no more. It is because of His death on the cross that God has written His law on our hearts. It is because of His work on the cross that we can have hope of redemption. It is because of His work on the cross that we can have the assurance of sins forgiven. It is because of His work on the cross that we can be sure that one day He will come and He will and He will raise us up and we will behold Him in all of His glory and we will see Him face to face. He will wipe away every tear and we will give praise to our God not only for what He has done in the past but because of what He is doing with us for all eternity praising the lamb jesus looks back and he looks forward to a day that is coming very soon take heart children when you are weak and weary even now in these evil days jesus christ will come for you he loved you so much he died and he loves you so much still he will come friends jesus death viewed as one of atonement He established a new covenant with his people, leading us in a new exodus. We are set free from our bondage to sin. You never have to sin again. You will sin, but you never have to sin again. God's Spirit lives in you if you are one of his children. You can put sin to death. Fight the good fight. Put it to death. Throw it off. Get help from your pastors. Get help from fellow members. And ask Jesus Christ to give you strength that is not yours by yourself. Friends, take heart. He has set us free. This is why we celebrate. This is why we remember and proclaim. We remember and proclaim what he has done for us and for our salvation. Because because we are so prone to forget. What you might not know is that one of the most frequent commands in the Bible is a command to remember. If you read the English Standard Version of the Bible, it appears 169 times. We are commanded to remember so that we do not forget, so that we can proclaim and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. The first week Gabe was in the hospital with encephalitis, there was a special high-five moment. He was allowed one visitor a day, and Andy stayed overnight so that Gabe's wife could go home and be with their daughter. That night, Andy asked him, Do you know who I am? Gabe replied, Yeah, Andy. Did I get that wrong before? I'm really sorry. Then Andy asked, Do you know anything about the high five? Gabe replied, No. The next morning, Gabe got up to use the restroom, and Andy said, Gabe, this probably isn't going to make any sense to you, but on your way back from the bathroom, I'm going to walk towards you, and I need you to give me a high five. And as Andy started to walk toward Gabe, right before the high five, Gabe did the clap, snap, and Andy just broke down crying. Later in an interview discussing that night in the hospital, Gabe said, that's one of the things that I love so much about the routine of it. Not just the mechanics of it, but the friendship part of it is so burned into my body memory that that's what came out. And now, after having spent weeks in the hospital, I've just been trying trying to find my life again. And this guy is a huge part of it. And this thing that we started years ago has come to be so important. 
When asked what it was like to carry on a tradition with a friend who can't remember it, Andy said, There have been seasons for me when I needed more emotional support, and Gabe was there to walk with me through it. During this time, I have been carrying more of the memory, but that's the normal ebb and flow of every relationship. This feels like a time when I can repay Gabe for ways that he has carried me in the past. When asked what it was like to learn anew about something that was already so special to him, Gabe replied, In the midst of something I've never felt before, where my brain is swirling, there was some kind of routine. It brought a little less chaos into what was already a pretty chaotic time for me. And now, even after six years of doing this simple thing, every time I see my wonderful buddy, walking down the side of the road toward me. That's special. We're dedicated to each other, and we're showing each other in a way other than just calling each other and saying, hey, I love you. We're actually doing something together, and that hasn't gotten old. And friends, I'm here to tell you that it never will. Beautiful things like the high five will never get old because they are gifts to the world. In a world filled with so many ugly things, we need more beautiful things like the high five and the Lord's Supper and the baptism we were supposed to celebrate today and congregational worship and friendship in a time that has been pretty chaotic for all of us. We need more beautiful things like these things to re-narrate our lives around the story of redemption. And that is exactly what congregational worship and the Lord's Supper and baptism do. They're beautiful things that re-narrate our lives and help us remember what we're all prone to forget. The beautiful story of redemption. That you are a sinner who deserves hell because of your sin. Your sin is so evil and so wicked. It has so radically separated you from God that there is no hope for your life apart from Jesus Christ. But God so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world to live the life that you could never live, to die the death that you deserve to die, to bear the wrath that should be entirely yours, so that if you would repent of your sins and trust in Him, you might have everlasting life, not just on the day of your conversion, but every day until He calls us home and makes all things new. We need to remember the beautiful story of redemption in a world that is so radically broken, telling us so many lies. The world is trying to re-narrate us, telling us things that are false and untrue, driving a wedge right between us. They look at the church and they laugh right now, and we stand here in defiance and say, we will remember the beautiful story. And it will not tear us apart because God has made us one people in Christ and he has made all things new. Artistic friends, we need your help. We need beautiful things, beautiful music, beautiful pictures, beautiful things to remind us of what is truly beautiful. Friends, you want to change the world, join the church, strengthen the church, help the local church become stronger. And then you will see lives forever change. You can't fix the nation and you can't fix the world, but you can stand up right where you are and walk alongside the people who are right here with you and helping your pastors build something beautiful. And the scripture promises us the gates of hell will not prevail against that work. 
in the midst of a world filled with so, uh, so many ugly things, Jesus did something beautiful. Finally, just look at your Bible. Right there with the Lord's Supper. On the front side of it, we see Judas's betrayal. But on the back side of it, we see Peter's denials. And right there in the midst of two ugly things, Jesus does something beautiful. He sits in the midst of people who were his enemies. Knowing that one would betray him, one would deny him, and every single one of them would abandon them. And then he does something, telling them what they don't even know that they need yet. That I'm on my way to the cross to die for you. Brothers and sisters, he died for you. And he will forgive you of your sins right now. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beautiful story of redemption. And Father, we pray that once again, as we have turned our attention to your word, you would remind us of these eternal things. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in the midst of those who hated him, in the presence of those who would deny him, and those who would abandon him, and yet willingly went to the cross anyways. Father, we find ourselves in this story today. We are those who have abandoned and denied and betrayed our Lord. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. And that once again today you would remind us of the beauty of the gospel. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've given us this word so that we may not sin, John tells us. But we thank you for the wonderful words of John as well. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God, we appeal to him today. Help us with our sin. And Father, we pray for the one who has joined us online today, who is not yet a Christian. God, we pray that today they would hear the voice of the Galilean calling out to them, Repent, come to me, and I will make all things new. May they come, may they reach out to this church, and may they hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus forgives sinners.